by Grabthar's hammer, have we got news for you. <laughs> I see what you did there. Indeed. Well, Darren and myself, Mark A. Altman, the Trexperts, minus one, are uh, going to the American Cinematheque for the best of the fest this Sunday, the 27th at three o'clock for a very special screening of what some people call their favorite Star Trek film of all time. It's not ours, but it, not we ours, love it. We love it. We love we it. We love it. And of course, we're talking about none other than Galaxy Quest. We love this film very much. And we're going to talk about it and uh, introduce a, 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 a beautiful, uh, I don't know if we're showing a print or a DCP, but whatever it is, it's beautiful. It's yes. going to be fantastic. We've never seen anything like it. <laughs> on the giant arrow movie screen. Look, we love the American Cinematheque. I'm a member of the Cinematheque. Uh, I think it's great. They're showing some amazing films as part of this festival. We're thrilled and delighted that they have the uh, Trexperts coming. And we hope you'll be there as well for this very special screening of Galaxy Quest on Sunday, July 27th at the Arrow Theater in Santa Monica. Featuring the Questperts. Yes, for, for that very night, we will only be the Questperts. We will no longer be the Trexperts. We will be the Questperts. Questperts. That's what happens when you activate the Omega-13, Darren. That's right. Turns the Trexperts into the Questperts. Oh, my goodness. Anyway, we hope to see you there this Sunday, July 27th at 3 p.m. At the Never Arrow give Theater. up. Never surrender. And for more details, go to AmericanCinematech.com. And if you can't spell Cinematech, just Google it. Yeehaw! The Trexperts Inglorious Live <laughs> Tour continues this summer as we head to Austin, Texas. Austin, Texas for another great Galaxy Con. Right, Darren? The home of Steve Austin. No, it's not the home of Steve Austin. It's the home of fun and galaxy goodness. We're going to go galaxy hopping. We're hopping galaxies. <laughs> and uh, we're not the only ones who are hopping galaxies. Angel himself, David Boreanaz, is going to be there. Andy Serkis, the chameleon. Maybe he'll break free. Maybe he'll be able to escape from Austin by the, the end of the weekend. Uh, Charlie Cox, the daredevil himself, Vincent D'Onofrio. Ming-Na Wen, the wonderful, luminous Ming-Na Wen, star of uh, Book of Boba Fett, is going to be there. Stephen Amell. Let's see if he fails this city. And uh, <laughs> many more, including such Trek luminaries as Bill Shatner, Walter Koenig, LeVar Burton, Jonathan Frakes, Gates McFadden, Armin Sherman, the great and luminous Terry Farrell, Will Wheaton, and many more, including our good friend Terry Metalis, the showrunner of Star Trek Picard Season 3, and uh, everybody's favorite, Giancarlo Esposito. We all love Giancarlo, so more that is pretty cool. More stars than they're in in the sky. I know more stars than there are in the in the galaxy. In fact, at GalaxyCon, so we're going to be thrilled to be there. The Trexperts will be moderating another couple of fantastic panels. We hope you'll join us. It's always a great time at GalaxyCon. You can find out more at GalaxyCon.com. That's GalaxyCon.com, and join us in Austin, Texas, September first through September third, uh, and uh, it'll be a great Labor Day. We'll Love's labor lost. See you there, partner. Yeah. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Dockerman. And if you haven't already made the trek, it's time to join us on our Kickstarter. Um, the Trexperts are getting ready to go to all the great Star Trek locations around the globe and perhaps around the galaxy. We and are we'll boldly, be boldly going. 
not just, you know, weekly going, it's both. Indeed it is, Darren. And we've announced some wonderful people will be taking the trek with us. Uh, just recently, uh, the, the lovely and talented Terry Farrell. You know her as Dax from Deep Space Nine. She's going to be joining the trek. And uh, when we head up uh, old uh, Star Trek Five-Way, Trona Peaks, uh, Cynthia Gao is on board, uh, Caitlin Dar, to uh, uh, mediate galactic peace between the, the three of us. Because, you know, Darren and Ashley and I don't always get along, but when we have someone to mediate galactic peace, we're in a much better place. I suppose that's Klingon for yippee. <laughs> and there are some spectacular backer rewards, everything from challenge coins to pins to a chance to uh, actually join us on the podcast, as well as Ernie the Vasquez Rock. And that's my favorite. So I think you should hop on that right away. And if you want to support our Kickstarter, you can go to makethetrek.com. That's makethetrek.com today and uh, grow stronger through the sharing. You'll be glad you did. We look forward to you joining us on this incredible adventure. Join us. Hey, this is Mark Altman of Inglorious Treks, Prince in the 430 movie. And if you're a fan of our podcast, you don't want to miss Deck 78, available now by subscribing at treksprinceplus.com. This is a bonus podcast full of great discussions about popular culture, film, and television. By your command, here's a sneak peek. He's a different kind of hero. And if you put it in the context of when this show was, this show was at its peak in the the late 50s, that's sort of the peak of cowboys and Indians on TV. And kids played cowboys and Indians all the time. It's before the 1960s, so you didn't have monster kids yet. You didn't have sci-fi kids yet. It was all about Westerns and playing cowboys and Indians. And that's why Disneyland has a whole frontier section for that very same reason. But he wasn't Daniel Boone or Davy Crockett. No, because, he's different. <laughs> because, he's, right, Scott, he's quoting Shakespeare and Dickens. Right. I mean, it's more Star Trek II. Right. Uh, you know, he's so erudite. Um and one of the one of the great episodes, I know Doug Drexler talks about this a lot, is Molly McGuire, I think, I, I'm, I'm where um, he he gets robbed, and so he he needs to he has no money, no anything, and he gets a job working for this woman, uh, you know, on her ranch, and uh, she just she doesn't know who he is, and he, but he can cook and he can clean, and she thinks he's amazing, but then she notices the calluses on his hand, and she know and she hates violence because her husband was killed because of in a gunfight. But, you know, ultimately, like, he starts, he goes to our library and starts quoting all these books, and she just can't believe this guy. Like, he, he is, a, he is a truly a renaissance man. Yeah. And that's why there's that Spock quality, and there's also the McCoy hatred of injustice, and, um, and, and it's, it's amazing, isn't it? Uh, what do you say, Scott? Yeah, one of the Roddenberry episodes, one of the first ones that Roddenberry wrote for the show, has him kind of, like, rolling up on this, on this, uh, uh, fort right on the frontier with the, with the various tribes, and he rolls up with some Indian friends, and they're ready to start shooting. And the way he just he comes down and like handles it, and he's like, "I'm going to be very nice. I'm going to talk to everybody. I'm going to." I think he, he throws out some quotes to the to the to the uh, guys at the fort. But then, whenever it's clear that no one's going to listen, he, he turns, and the Indians are like, "All right, we trust Paladin. We don't trust them," and they all bail. Yeah. And then that whole episode has him with this crooked uh, fort commander tracking down Indian gold. Yeah. <laughs> and, and again, you'll see him dropping dropping a good quote to this. And what struck me also about it is Paladin is very much, you no, know, this is the law. These They have a right to their gold. And it brought to mind all the prime directive issues. Oh, yeah. totally. Yeah. yeah. He's, and, not just, he's not just a, a gunfighter. He's a fixer. He's a problem solver. Yeah. 
So subscribe today at TrexpressPlus.com and don't miss a single episode of Deck 78. Fire the rockets. Hey, this is Mark A. Alton. This is Darren Dockerman. This is Ashley Miller. And we are the inglorious Trexperts. And we're inviting you to go on a mission impossible as we look back at the unproduced Star Trek script, Star Trek The Beginning, with its screenwriter, Eric Jenderson. And of course, Eric has uh, uh, been on the show before. He was kind enough to join us recently at GalaxyCon Raleigh, where Inglorious Trexpress Live took a look not only at his work on Star Trek The Beginning, but uh, his more recent work as a co-writer with Chris McQuarrie on Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 and 2, as well as a look back at his magnificent Emmy Award-winning work on Band of Brothers. Indeed. Eric's an amazing guy, super talented, um, but just a real class guy. I mean, we we spend a, a bunch of time with him uh, after the panel, you know, just hanging out. And uh, I think that, um, you know, we're, we're really lucky. to We had him on the show a couple of years ago to talk exclusively about Star Trek The Beginning. And, and that, you know, got a lot of heat for him on that script. Again, out of nowhere, people started talking about it. It was actually a very highly rated episode where we really did a deep dive into the, um, uh, um, you know, that that script that was never made. And I, 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 I was interesting because I was wondering, you know, when we revisit it with him in Inglorious Trexperts Live, is there anything new that we hadn't touched on? But there was quite a bit, actually. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, of no, course, his mission. He's a uh, super interesting guy, super smart. Um, you know, the 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 conversation that we had with him um extended beyond I, I wish we had that uh that that dinner and drinks that we had with him recorded because uh I'm not sure any of us wanted that recorded. Oh god no, 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 no. But you know, I would just but the, some of the things he was saying about um Band of Brothers, uh working on that, like both on the panel and off, just he's uh he's a very thoughtful uh, guy, and by that I, I don't mean that he brings us presents. I mean that he he thinks very deeply uh, about his work and why he's doing it. Um, you know his uh, his commitment to uh, to veterans, I think, is really outstanding. And you know what I really respect about the man is that uh, he drinks gin martinis. Look, I can't do it. They hurt me. They hurt me a lot. Like literally, I fear death. And um, and he 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 can drink gin martinis. I mean. What else? What else could you say about a man other than that? This was a man. This was a man. <laughs> you know the, the, the funny thing. You know what else we learned from him? Uh, that Henry Sherney, who on screen could be one of the great dicks of all time, is right. one of the nicest people in the world. He kept telling us it's amazing that he plays this so well on screen because he is such a lovely man in real life. Oh, he, of course, is Kittredge in uh, the first Mission Impossible movie and the new one. Uh, yeah. He's awesome. His his vocal patterns in it are so exacting and scary. He's awesome. It's amazing. It took seven films for them to bring him back because he's such a great character. Yeah, he's so yeah, smarmy. It's, it's so weird. It's like when you see him 
on screen in, in Dead Reckoning, you feel like he's been in all the other movies. Right. And yet he he hasn't. He was only in one. It was just such a strange experience, but it was just so well woven into everything that was happening. Yeah. 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 No, absolutely. Absolutely. And who is the guy who did the recordings for the TV show? Was Johnson? Because he was also the transporter chief in um, The Cage. But it was the, the guy who did the no, voice of the no, tapes. No, no, no. The guy the, that was uh, that was the voice of the uh, Guardian of Forever. No, you're wrong. You no, said that in a previous. Uh, it was not Bart Larue. It, it was is not Bart Larue. It's, it's not Bart Larue. No, Captain you were, Kirk. You are 100 percent wrong. About that. You we, I let that go the last <laughs> time, <laughs> but it it's wrong. I will. That's. I'm going to do that right now. Just 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 so we can put this one. Let's to bed. ask Chat GPT. No, that takes too long. Good morning, Mr. Phelps. And plus, Chat PT, GPT is only as good as the information that's fed into that's it. Right. Good morning, so, Mr. Phillips. Since see. your son burned Boys hot in the sky, I have exactly. awaited a question. Voice of Mission Impossible tapes in uh, um, in Mission Impossible. Wait, in TV series. Here we go. Ready? Here we go. Bob Johnson. Bob Johnson played the voice on tape that gives the IMF leader his missions in Mission Impossible, Mission Impossible. Johnson was an American actor whose voice was also heard in episodes of The Outer Limits and Star Trek. Okay. I would just like to say that Bob Johnson would be a terrible name for terrible a name. villain. Terrible, terrible name. Terrible name. The most yeah, boring Bob Johnson guy. Johnson is threatening the world. No. Yeah, he's not. Be he's yeah, I know, exactly. Ladies and gentlemen, Bob Johnson. Could you imagine him at the conventions? I want to meet Bob Johnson. Johnson. Glorious Live with Bob Johnson. Yeah, yeah exactly. He had John a great Bobson. voice. He had an amazing voice, though. But, but you know what Darren says about like Bart Larue had an amazing voice. Bob Johnson had an amazing voice. And who was the other guy who had the great voice on um, Star Trek besides Bart Larue? There was the other guy who did. Well, uh, there was the voice of uh, the Outer Limits. Well, was that Vic, was amazing. Vic the Perrin. control voice, Vic, Vic Perrin. Perrin, right? Vic Perrin. Vic Perrin was the other guy I was thinking about who had the amazing voice. Yeah. Who was the uh, the the Hawkins? But he was on right. screen for that, which was really cool. And of of course, uh, Commodore uh, Stock. No, Schmidlap. Commodore Schmidlap. Mendez. <laughs> Commodore. Uh, no, no, not, not Commodore Schmidlap. Commodore Schmidlap was on the Batman movie. Of the 90s. Yeah, I know. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, but no, uh, uh, you know, he did the he did the voice of the Jaws trailer. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Percy Rodriguez. Percy Rodriguez. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who was not Commodore Mendez? Commodore no, no, Mendez he was, was, he was Commodore Stone. Stone. Yes, Commodore. Not only Stone. am I asking for it, I demand it. I demand I it. it. Uh, but you know, so many great character and voice actors on Star Trek. It's unfreaking believable. And now all you get are these bland voices. Well, I don't, I don't mm. blame them. Except for Henry Cheerney. Well, he's yeah. no bland Canadian. He's a he's spicy no Canadian. I'd he's love a spicy to see Canadian. him as a Star Trek character. He'd oh be my great. God, he'd be awesome. He'd be great. He'd be great. By the way, did you watch? Uh, did you watch uh, the crossover with the lower decks and the thing? I, I did. Paramount Plus. Oh, okay. I, I have to say, you know, I, 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 I thought it was well done. I really like. Um, uh, what's the name from the boys? J Jack Quaid as Jack that Quaid. character yeah. in live action, and <laughs> I, I have to admit. Uh, you know, when I, I jokingly dismissed Tawny Newsom in our 101 characters, she's actually terrific. But yeah. I have to say, this is no trials and tribulations. It, it, it's totally wrongheaded. They treat it as though these characters are all legends, which made sense for the, what was it, the 35th anniversary, where yeah. you're talking yep. about those original characters who were legends. 
it's really hard to see, oh my God, I really want to meet Ohara. She's amazing. But it's not Nichelle. It's a woman who's yeah. been doing it for six months. Because she's not amazing yet. Yeah. Yeah. We don't have so, the same emotional attachment uh, to to that. It doesn't even matter how how you know, good, not good, whatever your feelings on it are, it's irrelevant. It's, you know, trials and tribulations work because there were decades of love and affection for the original series characters and cast and a real history that was there. And it just wasn't. But I, I did, you know, really uh, appreciate seeing those guys in uh, in live action. Um, you know, it was, it was interesting seeing them try to... Uh, to straddle the line between the kind of heightened satire of lower decks that really works in animation and kind of mm-hmm. bringing that into um into live action but I, I think where where Jack Quaid was probably at his best in that episode uh was when he was being earnest uh with mm. Pike um you know it's uh that that to me was was kind of an interesting revelation uh, about those guys but uh, but it was it was an interesting experiment i will also say that i think that uh, as much as i let's let's i think we all have strong opinions on what makes an enterprise look great um i liked the enterprise as she was i liked this version of the enterprise as she was rendered for animation um i think the the color scheme worked a lot better for me uh cuz they did a a, a new um main title sequence for Strange New Worlds. It was animated in the same way that uh, the Lower Decks sequence is animated, and the Enterprise looked much better. Oh, yeah, it did, didn't it? And I have to say, my other problem with the episode is Trials and Tribulations, even if you were seeing this and didn't know all the backstory, there was like a really compelling story there at the heart of it. It wasn't just fan service. To me, this didn't really have a very interesting story. It just had... Wow, isn't this amazing? The animated show is meeting the live action show as and 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 you know, every line was about, oh my God, Spock wouldn't do that, or I can't believe I'm meeting Pike. Whereas I felt like Trials and Tribulations actually had like this really interesting mystery and story that was going on. It was just you know, it's again, it's it's kind of lazy. The, the, you know, it's like, oh, we got this great gimmick, and then they just lean into the gimmick without actually telling a really compelling story. That said, some great performances. Yeah. By the way, to that end, I want to read you before we go this wonderful letter we got recently at the Trexperts. Uh, this is one of our longtime listeners, Bethany Grace Howe. And she said this, she said, I just finished your podcast featuring the interview with James Fanson. I'll be honest, I almost skipped this one. The topic just didn't seem to interest me, but I have a rule when it comes to your podcast. Always listen because it's always good, and it was. At the end, I heard you all discussing why the actors of Star Trek today don't seem to be as heavily invested in the space program. In the space program, I think there are a few reasons for this. This is why I'm reading this letter while we're discussing this topic. She goes, one, I do think this still happens, but our media landscape is so fractured that we don't hear about it. Some current Star Trek actors who promote the space program or the sciences are Sonequa Martin-Green, who participates in events and interviews with NASA and other space organizations, Anson Mount, who visits NASA facilities and interviews scientists and engineers, and Tony Newsom, who has a degree in biomedical engineering and appears on podcasts and shows that discuss science and technology topics. My daughter shows me TikTok videos, YouTube shorts when these people are in them. I, I can barely navigate Facebook. She then says, too, 
I think there might be something else at play. I think many of today's Star Trek actors have other causes they are passionate about. In particular, I think of LGBTQ causes. Yeah, I guess that's a woke thing, but as a transgender woman, let's just say I wish a hell of a lot more people were awake. Anthony Rapp advocates for LGDP, uh, LGBTQ representation in Hollywood. Wilson Cruz is openly gay. Ian Alexander, Blue DeBario, Jess Bush, Mary Wiseman, Emily Counts, Tig Notera, all these actors are LGBTQ, and all of them are known as fierce advocates for my community. On the current Star Trek shows, many of these actors portray characters like this, but even those that are portrayed by straight actors like Jerry Ryan, Tony Newsom, Michelle Hurd, Jess Bush, <laughs> are huge advocates for the community. To me, all of these people, very much like Michelle and Lieutenant Hurra, they inspire me to believe there's a place and a future where I fit and belong. Now, it could be argued that all of these modern Star Trek actors are more interested in the social advocacy aspect of it than the science. I wouldn't deny that. Indeed, I've heard that as a criticism of the shows they were on. So I think those two things get conflated. But I would say, like you all did, it's a different time. When Nichelle was out there raising the voices and profiles of Americans of color to bring them into the space program, she was part of a continuing line of historical progress, which I would say was improving for people of color. Her job was to make the space agency match the nation that had always been there, a nation that was finally seeing itself allowed to participate in the America that had denied them for so long. And uh, she she goes on and she ends by saying, these actors are fighting the fight. I so desperately need them to. I love seeing LGBTQ characters in the 22nd, 23rd, 24th, 25th, and 29th centuries. They inspire me for the world. I hope that is to come. But I would need them to do more as fight for me in this century because I find myself often losing hope that I, my community, my daughter will be able to boldly go out my door and be safe. Thanks for reading. I'll always keep listening. She says, I oh I speak because you always take the time to listen. Have a great weekend. Yeah, um nice. and, and we engaged with her to thank her for her thoughts, at which point she replied, one of the things I love about your show is how open you are about how much you dislike them, while at the same time allowing that other people do. As you'll often point out, you would rather spend your time talking about the things you love than pounding on the things you don't. It sounds like such a simple concept that the fact that you have to point it out is almost tragic in and of itself. But in a world that seems to be increasingly governed by performative rage and agitocracy, you guys are a wonderful breath of fresh air. Not just because philosophically I wish the world was that way, but because, as I mentioned earlier, it makes me want to listen even when the topic doesn't interest me. Because everything is discussed in an environment of mutual respect, it helps me listen to things that I don't agree with or even want to learn about. And as a result, I find my mind opening up and getting smarter. And then she ends the letter with this. Thanks again, and please keep telling me where you all go out to eat. I travel a lot, and there's nothing better than a good steakhouse. <laughs> That's so good. Glorious Trexpert special report. Where are we eating? I, What's for dinner? For, for fear of, again, being top-heavy in our intro, we need to get to our panel to let the people <laughs> listen to our panel, and then we'll come back with a lot more. Fair enough. And now, join us as we talk to Eric Jenderson, about Star Trek The Beginning, Band of Brothers, and Mission Impossible. When we're here to talk about Star Trek, but we're not just here to talk about Star Trek, because we got a great guest today, which I'm going to announce in just a second, who in addition to having written Star Trek The Beginning, a great unproduced Star Trek script for Paramount, so imagine they didn't make it, go figure. We all 
also, he also wrote, oh, he's a co-writer on Star Trek Dead Reckoning. Star Trek Dead Reckoning, what am I talking about? 7.30 panels, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning. But before we introduce him, I want to bring out my fellow Trexperts. You know him as the associate producer on Star Trek The Next, Star Trek The Motion Picture Director's Edition, Darren Dockerman. And our most recent Trexpert, the writer-producer of Thor, X-Men First Class, and the showrunner in Dota, Dragon's Blood, Mr. Ashley Edward Miller. And we are delighted to welcome as a special guest uh, a, a long time, uh, we're a long time fans of his, uh, Emmy winner for Band of Brothers. Um, we're gonna talk about Star Trek, most recently in theaters, co-writer on Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning, part one, and if he doesn't say anything today that gets him in trouble, also part two, Mr. Eric Genderson. <laughs> Eric, good to see you again. Good to see you guys. And you, if, if any of your panels should be caught or killed, the secretary would disavow any knowledge. Yeah. Come Wait. on, that was funny. It was. <laughs> oh, goodness. You, you, for someone who didn't... Take things seriously. For, for, someone, for someone who has not actually had their Star Trek script produced. You've talked about Star Trek quite a bit at this point. I have. It's, it's the most thoroughly reviewed and discussed unmade film maybe of all time. It's ridiculous. Yeah, and that's and, just the beginning. And that's... Oh, my God. <laughs> the, this is going to be a long night. Yeah, um, yeah uh, Star Trek Dead Reckoning, by the way. I, we Star Trek Dead Reckoning, we should talk. Wait, <laughs> um, yeah, it's been, it's been an odd journey because... And it was all due to Ain't It Cool News. Yeah, let, let's... And, and how they got the script, I genuinely don't know. Yeah, uh, let's talk about that, because you came into my orbit when I was writing The 50-Year Mission, and we had that great conversation about your script, and then subsequently had you on the show and talked at even greater length. Now, just to set the table for all of you, because, look, a lot of people say they have Star Trek scripts, right? I mean, Jay, Jay, and, and super fans like J. Michael Straczynski, he pitched, uh, it, you know, it didn't, get, it didn't get past the pitch stage, right? A lot of these scripts that you hear about, Chris McQuarrie had a Star Trek project with Brian Singer. Obviously, didn't get really past the pitch stage. This is different. This was a script that came very close to going into production that Paramount hired you to write. Can you tell us how you first got involved, because what's so interesting, Eric, is you're not a Star Trek, or you weren't a Star Trek fan at the time. Um, how Star Trek came into your life? Uh, yeah, happy to. I, I, I kind of came to it kicking and screaming, in a way. Um, I got this anomalous phone call from my agent, and this was about, this was about three years after Band of Brothers. And he asked me if I would be interested in talking to uh, it, I think it was Kerry McCluggage and Brandon Braga and Jordan Kerner. Was Brandon Tartikoff? Not Braga. Braga. Really? Yeah. Okay. Uh, about who were they were interested in producing a a Star Trek movie. And this is in 2003, I think, or 2004, uh -huh. I guess. It was 2004. And I said no, no, I'm I'm, I'm really not. And because <clears throat> I I wasn't really a a fan of the series. There were, and yet they persisted. So they kept on calling me, and I kept on saying, "No, I really, I'm not, I'm not that interested." And then they were so persistent that I finally said, "Look, guys, the, um, there are two things about Star Trek that I find phenomenal. One is the character of James T. Kirk, 
this sort of Horatio Hornblower guy that we've all come to know and love, who I find fascinating as a storyteller, as a writer. And secondly, the fact that Star Trek, unlike any show, maybe in the history of television, was always socially relevant and politically relevant. The stories that they were telling were about something else. I mean, that was the real genius of Roddenberry, mm -hmm. I think. Uh, that said, I wasn't attracted to it because I'm just not a science fiction fan. I'm a kind of a Jules Verne, H.G. Wells, Arthur Conan Doyle kind of guy. But they kept on persisting with this, uh, this notion that I, I'm, uh, they, want, they wanted to hear from me. I don't know, maybe because of the Nicholas Meyer thing, you know, that again, mm -hmm. somebody who's not... Who is not a fan. Not a fan. A fan, right. and, and a lot of the same touchstones, but not it, a Star Trek fan. Exactly. And so I, I finally relented, and I said, let me think about it, and I, I came up with an idea, and it was simply that, you know, if you look at the entire canon from Enterprise on, it's like looking at an encyclopedia that's missing the letter G, and th which is the Earth-Romulan -Rom War that was the genesis of you know, the, the Federation of Planets and all that stuff. And so the question is, why on Earth not, why not fill that hole? Why not tell that story of the genesis of all this, how it happened? And so I came up with a, the idea for a trilogy uh, that would start with a film that was a little bit like the Iliad, and then it would be followed by something that would be a little bit like the Odyssey. And the third film, I had no clue what it was going to be. But um, I, so but it I. It sounded I, good to pitch it as a trilogy. Yeah. Yeah. And I pitched it to them, and, and they said, Would you come down and, and talk to Paramount? I said, Sure. So we walked into the room, and this was an unforgettable thing. In my entire career, I've never had this happen before. I walked into this room, well, ahead of time, there were there's raft of producers, all those guys, plus uh, Berman. Right, Rick was Berman. There. Who at the time and, had a deal to produce any Star Trek movie right. at Paramount. This was right after Enterprise, but they had signed Rick Berman Productions to a deal, and anything that was Star Trek, he was still attached to. Right. And so I had these four producers with me, and they told me ahead of time that I was going to be meeting with Donald DeLine, who was the head of the studio, and that he said, don't worry, he never buys anything in the room. Ever. So don't sweat it. I said, I'm not sweating it anyway. Because the best thing to do as a writer in Hollywood is to not be super invested in something if you're going to go in and pitch it, yeah, really. Right. And so I went into the room, and I, the first thing I said is, I'm not really a science fiction fan. And Delane said, really? I said, no, I'm not, and this is why. That said, this is what interests me about Star Trek, and this is the story I have. So I started to tell him the story of the, of the film. And the strangest thing happened. It was literally like it was a, a, an airlock. I mean, all of the air had been sucked out of the room. You could hear a pin drop. At one point, it was so odd that I looked over at the, this couch that was filled with all of these producers, and I think it was Jordan Kerner who was doing the Kennedy just got shot thing. With his, <laughs> right, he was right. just sitting like this. You were it dying. was just bizarre. I thought, well, this is just dying on the vine. <laughs> and I finished telling the story, and Delane said, okay, how fast can you write it? And I said, well, I could have it for you next Tuesday. And I said, no, seriously. <laughs> On Tuesday? You know, I don't know, it'll take a few months. Yeah. And he stuck his hand out and he said, write it fast. Wow. I didn't know what that really meant at the time. And I did, in fact, deliver it on time. I went home and, and I, I determined, because I suddenly had, was tasked with doing something that then became very important to me. Because as a, as a kid, I was, I was a massive Arthur Conan Doyle fan. And I really, 
couldn't stand all of the apocryphal stuff. I and mean, with the exception of 7% Solution, mm -hmm. all the stuff that was written afterwards, it was just rotten. Nobody got it. And I, it just always hurt my feelings. And I realized that I now was carrying a responsibility to this franchise, to this canon, mm -hmm. to all of these devoted fans. To do were, the same thing. Who were like I was, yeah. right? And I, I just felt an enormous responsibility. So I did a really, really deep dive. In, into the canon, and I was. Do you remember what that entailed? Do you remember? I mean, it's yeah. a long time ago. Tell us. Yeah, I got. Tell I, us what that well, was. I was sent all the original series, which I watched. Um, I I went on. Uh, I I watched a fair amount of Enterprise. I went online and I went really deep with the research online because even then, and this was two thousand, late two thousand four. I don't think Memory Alpha was there yet, but mm -hmm. there was a tremendous amount of material available. Sure. You just need to know how to navigate it. And so I, and I didn't want to, it wasn't about fan service. I, there was a particular story I wanted to tell and there was a reason I wanted to tell it, but I wanted to tell it properly. And I wanted to, and you know, and make it my own, but make it absolutely true to, to Ken. But and at the same time though, you were under this tremendous time pressure from this studio. Did they let I, you in on why there no, was that? No, they didn't tell me why. And it wasn't that much pressure. I mean, I never, writers never take that, those deadlines seriously Well, anyway. sometimes. <laughs> you know, I mean, I didn't realize but how prescient he was. Because I ended up delivering the script on, I think it was a, a Tuesday of whatever week it was, and he was fired on Thursday. Well, you got it in before he got fired, and that's the important. And it was yeah, but nobody ever read the script because it, it was just wiped off the table because it was you know it was regime change. So the, the script never saw the light of day. But I have to share one other thing about the process of writing this thing and how seriously I, I, I was taking this, and I, and I grew to just love it so much. I, I I grew to become a fan in the in the telling of this story. And the best thing that happened was somebody emailed me to bring my attention to an editorial that had been written and published in some, somewhere online by this guy, Michael Hinman, who had, a, had started a thing called Sci-Fi Portal. <clears throat> and he'd written this scathing little editorial about how inappropriate it was that I was gonna be writing the next Star Trek movie. <laughs> and he went on and on about it, how you know, he's not a fan of the Band of Brothers and blah, 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 he's gonna make it all bellicose and everything. So I went on the portal, I saw, you know, contact me here, and I wrote him a blistering email back. And we were, I was talking to him about it this morning, actually. We were recalling this. He was remembering how many fucks were in the, in the email. And it, because I really blasted him. I essentially, you don't know what you're talking about. You, you know, you're talking And he said, well, why don't you let me interview you for Sci-Fi Portal? I said, fine, come on, bring it. Mm -hmm. So he interviewed me and we became friends. <laughs> and when I had the very the first draft, which was the only draft done before I delivered it to the studio, I sent it to Michael. I said, "I think I know everything. I think I'm doing it all right, but I just you got it because he was such a huge trekkie." And so he read it, and and he called me back and he said, "Balance of Terror, Spock references the fact that there was a nuclear component." To the Earth Romulan War. Fuck! I don't have any nuclear weapons in this. Well, how am I going to do? And it led to the whole thing with the Mulig Hoffman Mountains, and that you guys know, having read the script, mm -hmm. of Tiberius having to go and actually acquire this ancient nuclear weapon to take 
to Romulus to knock Remus out of orbit. And but if it hadn't been for Hinman, you know, yeah, and the, a guy who was calling me to say or <laughs> writing to say you are completely unqualified to be doing this, <laughs> it would never have happened. Yeah, and what's so interesting, and we should talk about this because obviously I assume most of you haven't read the script, is this comes on the heels of six original films with Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and the rest of the cast. The next generation films, including Nemesis at that point, had been, Nemesis had happened, such as it was. Nemesis Uh, happened. So you had the four uh, next generation films. And so this was different in that it was going to be a film with none of the original casts, completely... Uh, a new, and of course it was called Star Trek The Beginning. I don't know if that was ultimately, that was what you put on the title page. I don't know if that's what it yeah. would have been called. Um, but how daunting was that to invent sort of from whole cloth these characters, but ultimately you did tie your protagonist into the, uh, what would ultimately become the legacy of James T. Kirk. No, it wasn't daunting at all. It was rocket fuel to have the freedom to, to do all that. And there were, a, there were a lot of referential things. There's some, there's some Vulcan lineage in there. Um, certainly the, this character of Tiberius Chase, who is the, Kirk's great-grandson, um, it, it would turn out. Um, Great-grandfather. Grandfather. No, time travel. It's fine. Yes. I mean, yeah. he got around, but not that much. That's <laughs> a time travel. That's a whole other timeline. Um, uh, and and there, are, there are a lot of little connections to the original series and a couple to Enterprise and everything. But there was a tremendous amount of freedom um, to, uh, to craft something that, look, I, what I knew going in is that the, the event of the Earth-Romulan War was such that it created the feder- ended up creating the Federation of Planets and has a lot to answer for. You know, it's, it's the inciting incident. It's the thing that sparked it all off, in a, in a, in a sense. And the other thing is, I, I, I was really fascinated by, again, making it relevant and making it about something else and making it something that's human and that you can latch into. It was about ethnic cleansing. And it, it was, I sort of based the basic notion of what was happening here on the, on the Bosnian War that had just concluded a few years before, you know, with the Serbs and the, the Bosnians and the Croats and, and what had happened there, that, that, that cleansing of your own kin, you know, um, and, and then tackling canonical things like, you know, no human who's ever seen a Romulan lives to right. tell of it. I figured right. out how to get around that and, and, uh, and had an enormous amount of fun. And I was really poised at the end. I was really ready. Having gone in kicking and screaming, into this thing, by the time I finished it, I just wanted to just go ahead and write the sequel immediately. Right. I was really into it. Well, that's one of the great things that you, you mentioned because Star Trek, at its, uh, at its best, was always allegory. Always, And yeah. it, when it was subtle allegory, not, you know, bonk, bonk on the head, uh, I'm half black and white, it, it, which is fine, but when it was well-crafted and sneaking the allegory in to trick people into learning things... Uh, that's when it worked the best. Yeah, it, it's something that makes you think. Yeah. And there wasn't a lot on television at the time that they could do that. And you had a character that was the biggest xenophobe of all yeah. um, that was related to Tiberius. And it was one of the, you had written it specifically, or you had in mind a specific actor. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, there was this character, Otto Chase, who is a Terran. And he has taken his whole colony of followers to the Muley Hoffman Mountains in Antarctica 
which is, you know, purportedly where the Nazis took all of their UFO technology at the end of the war, and it's all still there. And he's got all kinds of weapons and old weapons and nuclear weapons and everything, and he's, you know, he's a complete xenophobe. And, uh, yeah, I wanted Christopher Walken to play him, desperately. What would that have been like, Darren? That would have been a lot of fun. Yeah, wow. <laughs> We're going to the mountains. It's nice. beautiful down there. We got toys like you've never seen. <laughs> well done. Full fighters. <laughs> and an old watch. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, it's interesting because like um, Nicholas Meyer with Star Trek II, where he tapped into Moby Dick for his story, you were tapping, as you said, into the Iliad, and later it would have been the Odyssey. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, uh, you have to deliver the goods in terms of it's still Star Trek, there still have to be space battles, and you had a, a rocking good space battle, and a great romance as well for Tiberius. Yeah, serious romance. I mean, this is when, and which is the, the whole ideology of Kirk comes from this this romance between Penelope Gardner, Admiral Gardner's daughter, and and this this hotshot who's related to a Terran, and in spite of the fact that he's sort of number one in his class at the UESN, he's they he's not going to advance because of those politics, and so he's he's a bit of an outsider and a wild child, and. And I also wanted to address this notion of, you know, his, the, the soul of this character is him questioning this notion of how does one um, go boldly and follow at the same time. It's about initiative, you know. I also wanted to have an opportunity to undo the split infinitive <laughs> of the series, but I didn't ever got the, never got the chance, fortunately. Um, was... Your friend at the uh, portal, at the portal, the sci-fi thing, was he right that it was too militaristic? You didn't go in that direction. No, I didn't. Yeah. I didn't at all. I mean, you know, it was, it was about the technology. It was about, I mean, the, base, the basic notion of what would have happened had somebody taken a, a, a B-27 or B-24 to Berlin on D-Day and tried to take out Hitler. You know, what, what would have happened on the beaches? Um, and this is, and, and it's clearly an unwinnable war. It's essentially that the Romulans have invaded and they have surrounded the Earth and they're essentially demanding that, that the Earth give up its Vulcan colony uh, or else. And we respond, we're not going to do that. And so it, the, the war that ensues, around, which surrounds the planet, is completely unwinnable. But luckily there's this experimental spacecraft off of Saturn and Saturn flight range that, uh, that, that might be able to make a difference, you know? So it's all that great stuff. And, and it's, what's great is Tiberius has to grapple with this idea of sacrifice and the greater good. Yeah. Because he has to make some really difficult choices in the script. Very, very difficult choices. And my favorite thing, really, to a great degree, is at the end of the movie, um, once Remus has been kicked off of its own orbit, from this explosion, and he's and he, he has in he and his ragtag crew are in a Romulan ship, and which does isn't that warp capable, and now he's got to go home. He's going to make the journey home, and he has no idea if there's going to be a home there when he gets back. He has no idea what were the consequences of what I've just done. Right. Did it do any good at all? And is there going to be an Earth there once I get back? And how long is it going to take me to get there? 
I love how respectful you are of Canon, you know, especially for someone who is not, you know, didn't begin as a fan of this, and yet Canon was super important to you. Yeah. Which we can't say about Even everyone. down to the United Earth Space Agency. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, this is true. It's and got their Makos in there. Well, you know, <laughs> it's funny because as much as you pay homage to the original series, there was a lot of Enterprise uh, Easter eggs as well. Yeah. Because it was, uh, it was shortly after Enterprise had gone off the air, and, you know, they had talked, Manny, the late Manny Cotto, the late great Manny Cotto, had talked about had there been a fifth season of um, Enterprise, it would have been about the Romulan War, and sort of their loss was your gain for a brief shining moment, in that you were going to deal with that. And uh, of course, you couldn't ignore Enterprise if you were going to deal with the Romulan War, because that was kind of the time period of it all. Right. So I, I put them on a planet on vacation yeah. for the <laughs> duration. But it, it was it, it was just weird, you know. It was, and it's happened. It, it's listen. It's happened to every writer working in Hollywood, this regime change dynamic. I yeah. mean, the, every writer I know has got a sock drawer full of camera-ready projects that literally died solely because the executive was fired and nobody wanted to take it on. Just But what happens is you go in with that attitude like, okay, I'm gonna write it, I'm gonna get paid, and whatever happens. Then you get really excited as you're writing about it, and you think, there's, you know, uh, you got such a great response from Jordan Kearney, your producer, and from the head of the studio, Donald DeLine, you think, oh boy, it seems like it'll be fast-tracked. I think this is gonna happen. And yeah. you start to fall into like, oh my God, this is amazing. And then the heartbreak of suddenly finding out that he's been fired. Yeah, and, and it's, just, it's just dead. And it's you just know, Charlie Brown with the football, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it, 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 you know, it takes years for anything else to happen. Yeah. And so, and, and who knows? But then the, the real, to sort of pour salt in the wound, I got a notification just before JJ's movie came out. I, I got this notification from the WGA that they were going to hold up the release of his movie because they just determined that I wasn't in the chain of title. Um, and I, I, I couldn't even believe it. So I called the WGA, I said, what are you talking about? And they, they explained to me that properly I should have been there because I'd written the prequel thing. And I said, but that's not the movie they've made. I said, unless... The uh, Kurtzman and Orsi have read my script and are using some element of it that I don't know about. They take place in different centuries, for Christ's sake. Uh, so I said, look, let's uh, just contact Bob Orsi, have him call me, and we'll have a conversation. So Orsi called me, and I explained him what was going on, and I said, just, just pitch me, the, what's, what's the movie you guys have made? I mean, this, it, the release was like two weeks away. Yeah, yeah. And he told me the whole story. And I called the WGA and I said, this has nothing whatsoever to do with my script and it kind of sucks too. Yeah. And, and <laughs> well, and you know, history is repeating because of course, and we'll talk about current events, there is a script now at Paramount that has been make, more than making the rounds that is on a lot of executives' desks called Star Trek The Beginning. And uh, unfortunately... It's not your script. Oh, it's a different script. I didn't know that yeah. it was called the same thing and it's a yeah. different script. Yeah, and it takes place um, in a different era because it takes place right after First Contact um, with the Vulcans, and it's set in that era after so it's First before Enterprise. Contact. But it also is none of the original characters, and, but it does involve the Romulans attacking Earth, and apparently this is all hot right now, Paramount, because Paramount has a bad robot script, 
that's in development, but the Star Trek, the beginning now, is get, gaining some heat, whether or not it gets produced. So Pete, you may hear about Star Trek, the beginning, in the weeks to come on Trek Movie or whatever, the sites. Um, it's not this Star Trek, the beginning, sadly. Right. It's a different beginning. And who knows what people will be fired after this one. Enduring <laughs> <laughs> it. In the middle of it, yeah. Exactly, exactly, yeah. exactly right. Um, you know, it's interesting because here we are, you know, years and years after you, you wrote the script, still talking about it. Why do you think that there's so much life to this? Is the one that got away? Is it just that it, it was such a unique moment in Star Trek history and you did such a, you weren't beholden to the old gods in a sense and it, 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 and it just stands up as a great piece of writing. Are you surprised that there's still so much interest in it? I'm, yeah, I'm, t I'm stunned by it. it. But it also it goes back to the Ain't It Cool News piece. Somehow he got a, a, a copy of the script, and I literally I have no clue how he got it. Um, because that, they really are very tightly under wraps. It's very hard to get you know that, that stuff, and nobody leaks this stuff. And so he got a copy of the script, and he wrote up this amazing, very, very detailed synopsis of the movie, quoted it, because um, there are a couple of great lines. If you do say so yourself. Um, and, and, and it, I mean, extensive. I mean, it, it was like a, the full synopsis. It was the, he told the story of the movie. Mm -hmm. And then the next thing I knew, uh, and that was, it was shortly thereafter that it was on the wiki page. And, and I just looked at it yesterday because I haven't thought about this forever. To refresh your memory. To come yeah. do this. I looked on, on Memory Alpha and there's a, you know, a really extensive synopsis of the whole thing and the quotes and a whole breakdown of, of the piece. So it's, like, it's this story that never really got completely told, but enough of it was told, I think, to spark enough interest to be al almost quasi-canon. I don't know. It's... it's it's very gratifying. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting, there's a line at the end of all yesterday's an original Star Trek episode where it says, if only, and it's kind of like yours is one of those if onlys. If only this Star Trek had been uh, made, I mean, we'd have this wonderful trilogy of films, perhaps more, um, you know, and it's just, it was smart, it was erudite, it was action-packed, it had heart, it was everything that Star Trek, Star Trek should be. And there have been these moments in time where people get their hands on the franchise for better or for ill, I mean, one of the earliest uh, attempts at doing Star Trek was, you know, the great Phil Kaufman, who's done amazing films like uh, Invasion of the Body Snatches, The Right Stuff, um, uh, um, uh, Unbearable, Lightness. Unbearable Lightness of Being, a beautiful film that he directed. Um, he did Planet of the Titans in the 70s. Right. Not as successfully as you did. Do you remember that, Darren? But well, well, I I wasn't there. But uh, <laughs> you were in spirit. I, I was I was in spirit because they they did you know some pretty interesting pre-production work. They had uh, Ken Adam, the famous uh, production designer from the James Bond movies, in, and Ralph McQuarrie, no relation to Chris McQuarrie, uh, uh, designing a, a new Enterprise and a whole new look for the entire uh, uh, future of Star Trek. And uh, they did some pretty extensive work. Uh, and the, the story was uh, a little bit odd, but in an interesting way. Um, it has basically the crew of the Enterprise winding up on a, a uh, distant planet. And they, uh, through some anomaly or something, uh, 
get thrown back into time and they become the titans of mythology. And it's really weird. Well, and they bequeath oh, man fire. Yeah, they, they, you know, they give the gift of Prometheus, which no, wait, is probably Isn't spot. that a violation of the Prime Directive? <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I guess since they predate the Prime Directive, they're out in, in the clear. Right. And also they're God, so I guess they outrank Starfleet. That's right. So right. it's so interesting in that Phil Kaufman really related and focused on the character Spock. That was his gateway into Star Trek, and obviously he worked with Leonard a few years later on Invasion of the Body Snatchers because he loved working with Leonard so much. Um, you, on the other hand, uh, really um, uh, love, you know, found the character of Captain James T. Kirk was sort of your gateway, even though he's not in the script, his DNA is. Oh, 100%, yeah. I mean, I, I, when I was a kid watching these things, I just, I thought, this is one of the most, I mean, it's what everybody knows. It's, it's Shatner being Kirk. It's just, there's nothing that you can compare it to. Um, and, and it was, it was uh, you know, arresting character work. I mean, you just, you, you love to love this guy and, and his, all of his excesses and everything. But what he stood for in this, this sort of never say die attitude and, and his, is stuff of great heroes. It's you know, it's it's Horatio Hornblower, yeah. for sure. It's interesting because the word iconic gets thrown around a lot now, way too much. Everyone's iconic. Everything's iconic. This this microphone's iconic. But um, William Shatner and James C. Kirk are truly iconic. That is a great example of the word icon. You know, and uh, I was making fun of them being put into mythology, but they are mythology. Uh, they are our, you know, our stories that are told over and over again to generation after generation. And I, I had the ability to talk with Shatner a little bit about this because he, he had trouble understanding what the connection was to people. Um, and uh, I, I sort of connected it with the, uh, the NASA missions because we have as much connection to the NASA missions as we do to the episodes of Star Trek. We're, we're cut off from both of them and we're only viewing them on the TV. So I, I told him that, look, we looked on you folks in the, with the same sort of compartmentalization as heroes, the same as the astronauts who actually went there. There's, in our minds, there's no difference. So it was very interesting I, situation. I, I think that the other thing too is, is, that made it so iconic is this one it's the way in, in which the series the entire original series dealt with friendship i mean it's we they care so much about each other this group bones and spock mccoy and, I mean, and bones and mccoy yeah. uh huru and, and we love how much they care about each other on screen. And, uh, yeah, on yeah, screen. Yeah, on screen. <laughs> um, it's so interesting <laughs> because it's, it's, it's more the, than friendship. It's family, isn't it? Yeah, and it, it is. It's like, and, and I think that's one of the things that, that made it so magnetic for people is that, yeah, the, the adventures could be as goofy as hell, but as long as they were going through them together and we were finding out more about them and we were seeing these moments where they really cared about each other, and that's what people were just, and people are always thirsty for. Hunger for that; those kinds of connections that are seem they're genuine. 
We would like to know them. And yeah, we, we would like to go to know along them. with We would them. like to be a part of that particular dynamic. It's, in fact, and this is not a segue, uh, it, I think it's the thing that distinguishes the Mission Impossible franchise from so many others, like Bond, mm-hmm. is because it, there's this core group of, of people in the IMF that we love to love. That's actually love a great segue in a sense that um, Bond doesn't care about anyone or anything. Nope. Right? right? You know, and he's he, an asshole. He, he, yeah. He's an asshole, right? Absolutely. But he's our asshole. And well, no, he's he's the British asshole. He's not our asshole. He's, but, he's um, our friend's asshole. He's a rectum. But <laughs> but, but um, you know, with Mission Impossible, certainly the way the movies have developed, you know, he cares so deeply about his team, far more than Peter Graves did. So let's talk about writing your involvement in Mission Impossible. And of course, I'd love to know if you went back and looked at the TV series or, at all, or if that is just at this point so not part of this series it really it's, it's about the prior movies if that um how, you know how did you get involved and what was your approach uh to working with chris on dead reckoning uh i got involved the same way that we were just talking about it is the perfect segue it's just about friendship chris and i have known each other for i don't know it's me 18 years we met at the sundance screenwriters lab we were both advisors one year i guess it was about 18 years ago and we just hit it off like Damon and Pythias. And, and that's a time when he was, what he refers to as being in movie jail after Way of the Gun. Way yeah. of the gun. And I had a script I'd written uh, about Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, the French aviator and the author of The Little Prince. And um, I'd just gotten the rights back to it from in Turnaround. And I handed it to him. I said, you know, I, I know you don't feel like you're ready to quit the business, but if you, re- if you want to get back in the saddle, read this. And he read it, and that was the beginning of what would be the last 18 years. I mean, we've been mutual sounding boards for each other on everything we've worked on since. And, um, and then for Ghost Protocol, which he came on to fix, Rogue Nation and Fallout, I was just on the other end of the phone, you know, just as a friend uh, on constantly work, through, working through those. And then when the pandemic hit, and they, were in the, they just started shooting seven, uh, Tom and, and Chris decided to ask me if I'd come on, you know, make it official, and help to finish seven, and then co-write eight with him while they're in post for seven. I'll go ahead, uh, So, you know, no, uh, Dead Reckoning, I think, had some of its own particular challenges. Look, the, you know, the Mission Impossible movies are, are obviously very action and stunt driven, right? Those are your, your set pieces matter more in Mission Impossible film than in, than in Star Trek. But in, in Dead Reckoning, what I thought was really great about that film was that, um, in particular in that movie, the, the action scenes were well choreographed, but they were also very involved with the characters. They were, uh, you know, there's a, you can get a certain mechanistic quality in the Mission Impossible films that I didn't find in Dead Reckoning, particularly in you know the, the, the amazing sequence in Act Three when they're going up the train and you just have two people trying to navigate this, this impossible puzzle. So when you guys were, were crafting this, and you know I, I know these, these big movies, a lot of brains get involved with kind of putting together the stunts and all of that, but, but it comes down to, to you figuring out you know the kind of the emotions of this like what was your what was your approach to marrying you know Ethan Hunt's 
journey and how that was all going to land in this sequence, you know, with that scene, um, you know, with her you know, in this incredibly impossible scenario. I mean, obviously it was impossible. It's mission impossible, Ashley. It's, uh, we, we know that, but... Well, I mean, and this is just sort of the beginning of the apotheosis of these characters, you know, because it is part one. Right. And this, the whole thing was planned as one big two-part story. And it's, I'm going to try to answer your question very specifically. It really flows from, from Tom and Chris and what they've, they've established a way of working together and, and an approach to this franchise that's really extraordinary. It's really, it's, it's brought the franchise together from, you know, with Rogue Nation and, and Fallout and is, is they found the real heart of, of the story. So it flows from them. And, you know, as I said, I was it, just I'm friends and, you know, we're, we've been collaborators on so many things, he and I, and he trusts me and I trust him. And, um, and then when they brought me on sort of formally, it, it's not, it didn't change that much except just the pressure amped up because we were, you know, cranking out pages. But it, it's, it's a real, it really is, once I came on, it's a triumvirate. It's just me, it's me and Chris and Tom figuring these sequences out and making sure that, and sometimes there is um, certainly uh, reverse engineering because we, we, we know we have this set piece and we need to get to it completely organically. And, and it's all about emotion. It's all about keeping the character connected uh, to the event. What they're doing, they're doing for a reason. It's not just arbitrary. Even though on the face of it, it might seem absurd, this is where events have led and now I have no choice. You gotta find the why. Find the why and, and it's gotta be emotional. It's got, it's got to be for a reason and, and connected to the characters. And that's always the thing. So, I mean, we can, we can come up with an idea, Chris and I, bounce it off Tom, he loves it, we write it up, we read it, change some stuff, get his notes, we're good to go, and on the day, he has an idea that blows up the whole thing. And then we just pivot and we'll do something else and then go rewrite that that night and then figure it out the three of us together. Because it's, it's always something that's better. It's always about doing better. Um, and I've ne his, his, sometimes I think he's from another planet. I've, I've never met anybody who has such a f finely tuned instrument or barometer for for story and emotion and the connection between the audience and the characters. And it's utterly selfless. It has nothing to do with him. It has to do with the character of Ethan Hunt, not Tom Cruise or, or you know, Benji or Luther or whoever it happens to be. It's all he cares about. And it is 100%. There's nothing, there's nothing else involved. So we're constantly, it, it's a constant matter of having to pivot finding you've got exercising completely different muscles as a screenwriter than you ever thought you'd have to you know usually if there's a scene to write there's a yeah there's maybe six or seven ways that any given writer could write that scene but finding that no no we're gonna have to try it a 12th way and and it's constantly about making it better and just that much better and just that much better well so. i was so fascinated listening to chris talk about fallout because apparently from what, the way he talks there wasn't really a script. They sort of found it in production, right. which is remarkable. And, and 
it's almost impossible to imagine any other filmmaker or star having that kind of leeway where a studio is a, we're going to give you the hundreds of millions of dollars, go find the movie in production. Yeah. And it seems that even with a script, there's so much evolution, as you alluded to, with uh, the way things change. And I'm also curious about, because of course the way the Bond movies are put together, it's kind of like long before there's a script, the writers, the stunt people, the producers, they go out and they find these locations and then they come up with ideas for stunts in these locations and they reverse engineer to put those scenes in. So kind of what is the evolution of a Mission Impossible film in terms of writing it and rewriting it? Oh, well, it, it really begins with what do we want to do between the two of them, you know? And in this case, I know it's, uh, Tom says, I really want to ride a motorcycle off a cliff. <laughs> and what do you want to As do? As you would. And Chris said, I, I want to I drive a locomotive train off of a cliff. Well, let's do both of them. And let's, let's figure it out. And you want to throw yourself off a cliff because yeah. this is insane. Yeah, and, and then the conversations that he and I, that Chris and I had back way long before I, came, I actually came on board, just, just put that Mike anywhere. Mike was doing its own stunts as much as um, they go back years and talking about what 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 would be next what what are we how are we following what is going to happen next with ethan and this team where does it have to go emotionally and from a you know from a story standpoint and then the question of what could possibly be the next villain what is what is the antagonist to this story and if this is in fact going to be the the if if it's going to be the 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 final tale in the franchise. How, what's the most appropriate, what's the most extreme, what's the apotheosis of Ethan Hunt? What, what does he have to face um, that you know, we certainly haven't seen before? And so the, the idea to be bold enough back, this is like four years ago talking about it, mm -hmm. to approach this thing and to try to tackle the AI thing was Amazing. we were that bound to that zeitgeist yeah. moment four years ago. Bound and determined to do mm -hmm. it because we could see just extrapolating. That's what, you know, people who spend their lives writing for the right reasons and are really dedicated storytellers, you'll be spending a lot of time thinking about this shit and extrapolating and, and stuff. And, and it, it just seemed perfectly clear to us where all of this was leading. Uh, the, the timing just in the last year has been a, a really blessed event. And it's, it's scary stuff. There's no question about it. Um, but then there's always the problem of, and always has been the problem of, when dealing with AI or something that's everywhere and nowhere and has no center and lives in cyberspace and has no real form, how do you do that cinematically? You know, how do you, how do you make that compelling for the, for the viewer? And I think we've taken one step in, in, in this one, in part one, and where we go in part two is, you need to come see. Yeah. Um, by the way, I want to tell people that we are going to do questions, so if you want to start lining up by the mic, we're going to move to questions in a few minutes. But I do want to ask you, because you talk about Tom riding off mountain cliffs and train cars falling off of trestles, uh, Thomas the tank engine dying, but um, also there's so much heart in the movie, particularly there's so much juice in the relationship between uh, Tom and Hallie Atwell, and it almost feels at moments like the Philadelphia story, like a screwball comedy. And I love that juxtaposition between the big epic set pieces and yet the small intimate fun. It's the funniest of the Mission Impossible. Definitely, and, this, and I'm glad you brought this up. 
Because one of the things that Chris really embraced when he came on to, to, to do Rogue was that, look, one of the things about the franchise is every single film is directed by, it's a different director. So it's got a different tone, it's got a different look, it's got a different feel, it's got a different style. That's part of what defines the franchise. So when Tom no said- No doves in this one. You, you, when Tom said, you gotta come back, you gotta do Fallout, you gotta do another one. Chris says, I, I, but I shouldn't, you know, I've done mine. And then, but Tom insisted, and Chris finally relented, and he said, okay. And so he determined to make a real tonal shift did it with a different DP because he wanted to, even though it's not a different storyteller, it's not a different director, he wanted to continue this tradition of changing the tone, changing the look in each film. With this one, and I think this is an enormously bold choice, he's very specifically from the, our earliest conversations about this involved, you know, we're talking about Howard Hawks films and um, What's Up Doc? And, and bringing up baby and those kinds of films and this, the, the element of screwball comedy that if it's done right is just, is so fantastic. We've never really seen that. We've never seen that kind of humor in a Mission Impossible film and the idea of taking the, the most real world, gnarliest real world threat, existential threat to humanity that's not just a movie idea, we're all sort of feeling it already and all start getting ready to live through this. It's that scary. It's that bad a villain. And to tell it in the lightest tone was, I think, a really brilliant idea. Well, 40 years ago, to, almost to the day, Risky Business opened. And people forget how funny Tom Cruise could be because now he's the star, he's the icon, he's you know, a, a, you know, a movie star. But man, was he, did he have comedy chops? Yeah. Princeton, I guess it's University of Chicago. But, um, you know, you really see that come to the fore in this movie, which I think was you know, a really successful element among many. It, and it's, it's a tunable thing. You know, you gotta be really careful with that, with that stuff because it, 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 and it hopefully never takes you out of the, the, the story. I think there's something about, you know, the unbearable lightness of being in that kind of trouble. Sure. And that brings out the humor. And there'll be a tonal shift in part two. Any, any questions about Star Trek, about Mission Impossible, about Band of Brothers um, for Eric while we have him here? Um, yes. uh, yeah, go, oh, go ahead. Hi, my name is William. Um, uh, any details you had in mind that you can tell us about the Star Trek Odyssey, about it, it being the, the, the part two? Oh, the sequel to the beginning. What, what, what you would have done. Oh, the middle. Yeah. 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 Oh, what I would have done. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, without knowing, I guess, just in this conversation, there's enough of a sense of what the first story is like. This, this ragtag crew is stranded in Romulan space at the end of the beginning. <laughs> and it's a very slow ship, and they got a long way to go to get home. So the notion was. It, it was all up in the air for me. I really wanted them to have this very long, torturous journey and never arriving at Earth until the very, very last moment. Until The third act isn't, isn't about them arriving home. The, the story is more like Odysseus's journey. And I wanted to sort of, and th stopping at different planets and having some of these first amazing encounters that would become, you know, the, the, the staple of 
the original series that that his great grandson or great grandfather was the first to set foot on such and such a planet and experience something. So and and I I didn't want to get too clever and too cute about parallels to the Odyssey, but that was the notion. It was it was going to be Odysseus's journey home to his Penelope. So that means like the third and, movie would be killing she's, everybody at dinner. And right. she's pregnant too when, oh, when okay. he's off. Yep. So she's already given, she's given birth. She, at the end of the movie, she gives birth to a baby girl who would be Kirk's, Kirk's grandmother. Grand yeah. Uh, I want to ask a question about Mission Impossible, the current, the, I guess the part one. Um, so I work in technology and, and uh, have worked in AI for a number of years. So I'm wondering, what, was, what went into the choice, I guess, to make a villain? Like, tech has always been a major sort of, like, thing in the Mission Impossible universe, gadgets, yeah. all that. But there's always been, the big bad has always been a person right. that had a strong relationship with right. Ethan Hunt or the organization or what have you. What went into the decision about the entity that made it okay. interesting and different? Yeah. Um, I'm glad you asked that. What we, it started, it didn't really start specifically with the notion of we're going to take on tech at all. The idea was we're going to take on what's happening in the world around us right now. It's about not being able to trust the news, not being able to trust this decay in, of, of any sense of truth. You never know, you know, fake news, false news, all the shit that we're dealing with now and have been for the last more or less six years that's, 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 completely infecting our planet, our society, is it's so scary and nobody really, and people are so, become so tribalized as a result of it all and so divided. This, this we both find terrifying, this terrifying trend, and it's all through information technology. So, and the idea of being able to manipulate the truth, what happens when the truth, what happens to us when we literally have no idea if what we're experiencing is real or not. At that point, it's game over. And the fascinating thing, if you think about it, is that the IMF team has always been about manipulating people's perceptions. The mousetrap, the, you know, taking somebody off and making them think that this is what's really happened to them when it isn't at all in order to get this piece of information out. It's, it's a, it's, it is tremendously ironic, really, that this team that specializes, and they're all a bunch of originally scoundrels, sleight of hand artists and makeup artists and magicians who are all fooling people. And now they're up against something that's not even human that's threatening to fool us all into oblivion. So there's a lovely symmetry to that idea. And that's what really turned us on. It's, not, it's never been about tech itself. And one of the great things we both enjoy doing enormously, and we really did in this movie, is went full analog because nothing can be trusted. So there are, you know, things like Zippo lighters and keys and attache cases and sword canes and it's good old-fashioned espionage spycraft because you can't rely on any of the other stuff. So that, that's what it was. It wasn't, it wasn't anti-tech. It was anti-the uh, prevalent zeitgeist, I guess. It was anti-whatever you can extrapolate about if you go full Kurzweil and go to the singularity about what we're all maybe facing at the knee of the curve here. Thank you. Now, I, I just want to make sure 
that you're not under duress by the AI that actually wrote the script. Just making sure. If, if you're in trouble, blink twice. No one will know. That, see, it's, when an AI writes a script, that's not artificial intelligence. That's plagiarism software. There you I go. Think. That's, which is different. Thank you. exactly what as the three is of us as WGA members are, are fighting the good fight again. Yeah. Um, but, you know, a movie's only as good as its villain. And I have to say, S.M. Morales hasn't been this good in a long time, and he's great in it. Um, yeah. You've got, you got to give him his due in Ozark. His one little, okay. his little piece in Ozark was amazing. Yeah. But I, I, I will say, I was, the only disappointment I had was I've been waiting for Zachary Quinto to show up as Paris, and you burned Paris <laughs> off on... Uh, on, on uh, Palm. On, yeah. On, yeah, on Palm. And I just, you know, because obviously Leonard was so great as Paris, even though he hated the role, um, that I was just, where, where's, where's the Leonard homage? Wow. It's a good idea. You should have told me that earlier. <laughs> good timing, Mark. Yeah, a little late for that. <laughs> we'll always have Paris. Okay, go ahead. Oh, Not anymore. Oh, 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 oh. Wow. Uh, hello there. Um, you said at the beginning of this panel about uh, the uh, Star Trek movie that was never made, but that you worked uh, very, very hard on. And uh, speaking as an aspiring filmmaker myself, um, is there any, uh, what, what advice would you give to like very young and hungry uh, filmmakers uh, that is advice that you wish that you heard when you first started out? Uh, my advice to young and hungry filmmakers would be grow old and eat a lot. <laughs> um, no, it's just glib. Uh, what? There, uh, it's a, such an important question, and I've sort of grappled with it because the and the reason I'm hesitating is because the industry is, has changed so much. The environment has changed out there, and. You know, the Darwinism that is Hollywood, the, 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 you know, the, that space between art and commerce, that membrane which has been so bruised and bloodied over all of these years, I think is finally ripped open. And so it's, I'm cautious about giving advice except for really general advice, which I know that you can count on, is that if you want to be a filmmaker, if you want to be a storyteller, read a lot, not screenplays. Just read stories. Go into get an, uh, um, an uh, like an omnibus volume of great British short stories in the 1930s. Read stories and and read them as a storyteller and start to see what why why is it that my heart's suddenly beating faster after I've read that passage? What what caused me to feel that way? Because it's all about feeling. They're motion pictures and it's it's. It's about movement and it's about moving people. It's not just about moving from one place to another or different images that change. The, the job of, of storytelling and certainly filmmaking is to really engage and genuinely move people, not to manipulate them, but to move them emotionally. And there's so much to be learned by just reading stories and watching a lot, a lot, a lot of movies. You know, and, and especially, I would advise to especially pay attention to the films of from about the mid-30s uh, through the end of the 50s. Those, those three decades, or two and a half decades, uh, there was some of the most seminal breakthroughs in sort of cinematic storytelling, I personally, I think, have ever been made. And just become a student of it. Just watch as much as you possibly can. And then absolutely, without fail, 
right every single day for some period of time and make it the same period of time. And if you sit down and you, you're, you, you're, you're stuck, sit there anyway and know one thing for certain, there's no such thing as writer's block. It's utter bullshit. If you ever are writing something and find yourself stuck, there's, the reason is, is because you're trying to force something on the story or the characters that it doesn't want and it's, it's rejecting. And the thing to do, the thing I learned, the best piece of advice I could possibly give anybody who's writing is never walk away when it's going poorly. You n absolutely never do it. Because if you do, if you're, if you're stuck and you can't fucking find your way out of the scene and, and you walk away and you go have dinner and you go to bed and you wake up the next morning, you come back to the same stuck place and that <coughs> will just attenuate and last forever. What you do is, if you're stuck, pivot to something Write a scene that you know is going to be in your movie. You just know it's going to, it might be in the third act, might be in the second act, whatever. You, I know this scene's in the movie, I'm going to write this. And then when it's really going well, walk away from it. So that when you're coming back to, it's, it's already singing. And inevitably you'll find out that once you finish that scene, you'll go back to the other scene, you realize, oh wait, there's a connection between that scene and this scene. And, oh shit, that's, that's the solution. It's an amazing thing. And, but you, you just have to be kind to your story and you have to listen to the story and don't believe in writer's block and write every day. Yeah, the only thing I would add to that is uh, stay hungry. Um, you know, you have to want this job. And that includes doing everything that Eric just said and doing it seriously and wanting it badly enough that you're gonna survive all of the other crap that goes on. Because look, as, as difficult as some of these stories sound, right, people getting fired and your project dies, and it sucks, it's the worst. It's not the worst stuff that's happened to us. I can guarantee you that, okay, so you have to want it. And the only other thing I'll say is this, get the word filmmaker out of your vocabulary. There's no such thing. Steven Spielberg, David Fincher, Stanley Kubrick, filmmakers, Orson Welles, filmmaker. That implies this uh, sort of a tourist point of view that makes you an island. You're not an island, okay? There's a lot of people that you're going to need to work with from executives to directors to actors who are all participants in a creative process. And when you put yourself on that pedestal, when you say, I'm an aspiring filmmaker, nobody aspires to be an island, right? Aspire to be someone who, uh, who builds a career and carves a life out of a creative, collaborative act, because that's what this is. Well said. Thank you very much. And Thank I would you. also say, we talked a lot about Star Trek Mission Possible, but um, if you haven't seen Eric's magnificent Band of Brothers miniseries, it's, it's on Max, it's a, 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 HBO Max, Max, whatever the hell it's called now. Uh, you should absolutely watch it. It is spectacular. A huge Trekkie and Mission Possible fan, but I will be asking a Mission Possible question. Uh, so, was there, you know, there's like a lot of crazy stunts in the Mission Impossible movies, like climbing in Mission Impossible 2, that was, I think there was a skydiving in Mission Impossible 3. Was there anything that was just, that you were aware of that was, they said no, just to, as far as? Um, no. No. I heard a, a, a great story. He didn't tell me this story. I heard this. <laughs> I think it was on a talk show. I think it was Matt Damon was talking about having dinner with Tom, and they were talking about the, 
he's asking him that question. Is there anything, you know? And, and he said, well, what about the Burj Khalifa? What about that? That's fucking nuts, man. Climbing on, and he said, how'd that happen? And Tom said, well, I just, I wanted to do that my whole life, man. I just, I, tallest building in the world. And, and, and I, you know, and, and I went to my, my stunt guy and he said, uh, can't do it. It's too dangerous. Matt said, what'd you do? He said, I got a new stunt guy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because nothing, you, he, he's unstoppable and he's and he's, he studies the stuff and he prepares and he trains and it's, it's a tremendous amount to, as far as you can take it with safety you know but at a certain point there's stuff that you know riding on the side of the Airbus in uh, in Rogue Nation right. it, a, a grain of sand could have hit him in the eye or something and it would it would have been lights out a bird you know, and there's nothing they can do about that. There's no, there's no wires, no safety, anything with in in this movie when he goes off that cliff. It's all dedication, training, Crazy. and and he's it, it, just his sheer force of will. Yeah, but there's nothing I know of that he's said no to. And there's stuff coming. There's stuff coming in in eight that I just you know. I'll be day one for a new one. <laughs> He is, just... he is the glue that kept that string of movies so high quality, one after the other. The only, the only, uh, I guess, analog for comparison, I guess I can make, and I, I'm curious if anybody in this audience knows who I'm about to reference. Uh, Douglas Fairbanks? Mm -hmm. Anybody? Yeah. yeah, good. He's are Douglas Fairbanks because yeah. Douglas Fairbanks was the first movie star right. movie idol at first who started his own studio United Artists mm -hmm. right produced all of his own movies and did all of his own stuff well, and right. was a matinee idol who became a serious actor exactly yeah. yeah yeah so he's he's that's been what that was the late 20s mid 20s late 20s but it's amazing that the same studio is making these movies yeah and handling their other franchise so unevenly when in the 60s they were right next door to each other right which is fascinating yeah by the way when he said he was a star trek fan but he wants to ask you about mission impossible i was waiting for him to take off his mask but it didn't happen i love also that the the printer didn't work because i could relate to that you know when they're trying to print out the mask in the new movie and it's like something wasn't working it wasn't the thing and it was like it was good the analog hi i you were saying about Band of Brothers, I would like to ask, um, given how difficult it was for my grandfathers to discuss what had gone on with the Second World War, you know, how much, how difficult was it and how much work did you have to put in to um, dramatize the lives of the men in the Easy Company and given that it was so well received? Thank you. It's the, for me, the, the it's the single most gratifying thing about uh, that project, and 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 I guess I think it really in my career uh, that I came on to Band Brothers. I was the first one to come on uh, because they needed somebody to come on as a lead writer and supervising producer to gather all the material and to figure it out, to figure it, to break it down into stories, and to write a bible for the series and to guide the the storytelling and the whole thing. And and that would lead me to uh, major winners. Richard Winters, who was the commanding officer of Easy Company, and later 2nd Battalion. And he and I became uh, profound friends in the course of the three, those three years. 
um, I, I ended up delivering the eulogy at his memorial service, which is crazy. Um, and certainly got to know a lot of the other vets, but my principal relationship was with Major Winters. And, um, and, and Band of Brothers was sort of a one-off in that it had never happened before that a studio, in this case, well, HBO, Chris Albrecht was running it at the time, and he determined, well, let me put it this way, I can rarely go to a pitch meeting without the first five minutes being some executive asking me about Band of Brothers. And they always almost ask the same thing. They say, man, how did that happen? I mean, it's still like the number, I mean, how did, and I always tell them the same thing, which is Chris Albrecht, as the head of HBO, decided that if you put the right people together, put the right material, and gave them enough money that he needed to leave them alone. Mm -hmm. And in fact, we received not one single note from HBO on 10 hours of scripts. Not a single note. And the executives always look at me and they say, well, that'll never happen again. You're missing the whole point. It's <laughs> that, that, that's how it happened. He got out of the way of it. But, but principally, we, we, had the, we had the luxury and the carte blanche to do it exactly as we wanted to. We put truth ahead of any kind of the, any, anything that was convenient from a storytelling standpoint. Sometimes we had to deal with tremendous storytelling inconveniences because that didn't happen or this didn't happen or this happened before this. And so we stuck to truth sedulous attention to detail and and it happened to come out at a time just in the nick of time when these gentlemen of that greatest generation were reaching a point at which they were about to you know leave this lifetime and and immediately following Saving Private Ryan they kind of kicked open the door because the fact of the matter is these sons of the depression these young men had no idea what they would be facing over there. When they were over there, the atrocities, the things that they did themselves and that they experienced and what they came home with, there was no frame of reference for them to talk about it. That was the problem. There was no way that they could, how do I begin to tell Aunt Ethel and Uncle Ed about coming across my best buddy hanging upside down in his harness on D-Day with his testicles stuffed into his mouth. What do I do? How do I tell about finding these, these barely human Jews who they've been starved to being barely human beings who couldn't look us in the eye? They've been tortured. How does that, there's no frame of reference for that. They were scared shitless by a lot of this stuff. And then Saving Private Ryan, and so they, they just chose as a generation to be, I think, to be quiet about it and to deal with their own combat fatigue, their own PTSD as best they could, and with each other. But it, essentially, they, they fell silent. These are tough, tough guys. And, um, and then Saving Private Ryan happened, and then Band of Brothers happened, and all of a sudden, and then hundreds of stories and letters I've gotten about what it meant to a family that they had no idea that, you know, Grandpa Joe was in Patton's army and he saw this and he sat us all down one night at dinner and he said, let me tell you the part I played in that. Because there was a frame of reference for them. So that's the most gratifying thing that could possibly be as a storyteller is to, 
have take part in crafting something that's so much bigger than the sum of its parts and that has such an absolutely profound and immediate effect on on people and 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 just in the nick of time too so it was a it was really kismet thanks for the question all right i feel like i have to start with this and then get to my question um my so i just want to thank you for telling that story because my grandfather landed D-Day plus one on Omaha Beach and two weeks later got appendicitis and had to have it removed in the field in a tent in France. And wow. He was shipped home. Wow. Or I might not be here today. Yeah. So thank you for telling that story. Um, my question is stupid. Um, I, there's a show on Netflix called uh, Drive to Survive about F1 racing. Uh, it's fascinating. Last season we saw Tom Cruise uh, in the garage watching one of the races with Toto Wolf of the, the Mercedes AMG team. Uh, they never acknowledged why he was there or anything. He's just in, a sh he's just in the background. Um, I'm wondering, is that just a pastime for him? Is he doing research for Mission Impossible? Like, will we ever see racing in he, the films? He's, uh, his, he has very eclectic tastes and he's into so much stuff and whatever he's into is 100% in cars planes, all that stuff is just, it's such a passion for him. So, but I, I, I don't think it has anything to do with anything we're planning. Planes, trains, and automobiles. Planes, trains, and automobiles. Yeah. And, uh, you know, maybe submarines. Yep. Hmm. Well, given the teaser in the new movie, I would expect to yeah. see a submarine pop up. Yeah. Yeah. And you can never go wrong with submarines. I'm not sure it's going to pop up. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, Eric, this has been really great, and it's always fascinating to talk to you. It's always like peeling back the onion. There's always more to tell with you. There's always new stories we haven't heard, and it's just uh, amazing. You've you know, such a, a prolific career. You've worked on so many interesting projects, and obviously it's a loss to Star Trek fans that they never got to experience the beginning, but at least um, they know how the story ends. So... Um, uh, we, uh, you know, and, and just to hear all these stories about Band of Brothers and obviously Mission Impossible and you have another movie coming out next year, Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning Part 2, um, where Doc Brown goes back to the Old West. And, um, <laughs> and uh, it's just been, been, been a delight. And if people want to follow you on, on social, are you on any social channels? I'm, I'm on, I've, I've got a Facebook page that I started to be able to play Scrabble with my daughter <laughs> okay but if you want to see those scrabble games <laughs> yeah they're they're real corkers uh no I'm, yeah I'm, I'm facebook and instagram instagram at pilot house okay yeah and you can always but, follow the and on, and on thread and oh, of course all six of us yeah and um but eric this was great as always and thanks for making the trek down here to talk about this yeah. uh thank you really my awesome. pleasure thank you guys thank you guys for coming really fun Thanks all of you for joining us. Yeah, we know it's late. Thanks for coming down and enjoy the rest of the convention. Hopefully it'll be a little less crowded now at uh, 8.30. Well, we promised you a great episode. I think we delivered. That was a great panel we did at Raleigh uh, with Eric. Eric's a terrific, thoughtful, fascinating guy. It is one of the true tragedies of Trek that his script was never made. Um, I, we also dropped some uh, things you probably had heard about uh, the new Star Trek, the beginning that's in development, but Paramount. So when you read in Variety in a couple of months or see it on Trek Movie and say, well, I didn't know about that, uh, you did because we talked about it months before it happened. Or like see when it's announced that it's out of production again. <laughs> yes, as often happens. So anyway, that's just a little, 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 little truth bomb for our, <laughs> our audience, uh, letting you know about what's going on and 
you know, we could probably tell you what's going on with the Star Trek shows too, but we'll wait for another episode That's to okay. do that. Um, anyway, too too much information. But I, I do want to thank Bethany for that lovely email that she sent yeah, that, that really awesome. encapsulates, uh, I think, our philosophy of the show, which is, you know, not everyone's going to love everything. And I, I know there are people who do. They say, oh, Star Trek is great. Well, that's wrong. It's a facet of, of Trek. We, we maybe don't talk about enough, which is infinite diversity and infinite combinations. And, you know, that... And with infinite things... There are some things that you don't find enjoyable. Exactly. And how would the value be if everybody loved everything? It shouldn't be like that. That's not how we get better, right? It's cool that we all love different things. And And it's like Rucker Howard, the things I've seen with with these eyes. It's kind of like we all look at it for different things. I mean, Darren, you know, comes from a a production place, you know, the, the, you know, as a concept artist, like how the ships look and some, you know, how, how they, you know, the production aspect. You and I often look at it, you know, from the writing perspective. And I love that she's looking at it, you know, but she sees herself reflected in these characters. Right, yeah. that you, you we wouldn't necessarily have that reaction, right? You know, um, so it, 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 but again, it, it, we've always said the show, and occasionally we slept, but the show is about celebrating love, and uh, we do respect everyone's right to 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 love what they love, right? And we tell you yeah. what we love, except Star Trek. You love what you love. I'm kidding. <laughs> we're kidding. <laughs> we're kidding, people. I'm kidding. We're, I mean, it's, we're not we're, kidding. We're that not, not kidding. A good we're going to get some tweets about is, that. We're not kidding about our opinions. We will never lie to you about our opinions. And that's what makes it real. And that's what makes it uh, good when we listen to your opinions, too. I've never liked Star Trek 3, and I never will. Um, Never forgiven it for the death of my That's the thing that cracks me up, because she can say, you know, I get that, you know, do you come in and play from this place? We've had people say, you don't like Star Trek 3, I'm never going to listen to you again. It's yeah, the most fine. childish and petulant way of looking at. I mean, not that we also yes they will, us, <laughs> but they, they will know, keep doing it. It's just so ridiculous. It's like yeah, nobody's saying you should like it. We're telling you why we don't like it. Yeah, we're not in why we don't like it. Why we don't think it's good. That's different than not liking it. Anyway, that's enough of this. Eric, thank you so much for coming all the way down to Raleigh and 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 playing with us on Inglorious Trexperts Live. It's a great panel. And I want to give a shout out to the audience. You know, often I say, you know, oh, some of these questions, these conventions, you know, it's just, you know, ridiculous. I mean, just just completely asked, you know, uh, you know, excuse me, why, why, why was Captain Kirk doing in this? You, the, uh, these were great questions. You were a great, great part of the show and uh, really uh, added a lot with, I they think, were decisive. Felt, they and, were personal and they were meaningful. Yeah, so so thank you to everyone who uh, stepped up to the mic to ask questions during this panel. And uh, we also hope you will support our uh, new Kickstarter at makethetrek.com. Um, it's a terrific way of celebrating Star Trek's upcoming 60th anniversary with the Trexperts. And you can follow us on uh, social at uh, Inglorious Trek and Inglorious Trexperts. And... Uh, Other than that, we'll be back next Thursday with an all-new episode. And uh, on behalf of Ashley, Darren, and myself, Mark A. Altman, keep on trekking, and gloriously, of course, and a very special thanks to Eric Jenderson for joining us for this episode down in Raleigh, North Carolina.
Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Docterman. And this is Ashley Miller. And we are the Inglorious Tracksperts. And we're about to go on the ultimate road trek with your help. We're going to visit the greatest Star Trek locations in the history of the franchise to celebrate the upcoming 60th anniversary of the cage. But we're not just going to take the Trexperts, we're going to take a lot of exciting Trek stars to these wonderful locations to explore how the future was made, including some of your favorite episodes and movies. We're going to go places like... Uh, like Vasquez Rock, where Kirk fought the Gorn. The Embarcadero, where Chekhov looked for the nuclear vessels. And we'll visit Starfleet Academy. And a concrete drainage ditch. That too and so many other locations that you don't know about. We'll also go back in time and look at what no longer exists, which is now a Shake Shack, the 40 Acres Backlot, where they filmed so many great episodes, including the pilots of Star Trek. And look, this is a project that's being made by industry professionals. Not only are we the hosts of one of the most popular Star Trek podcasts out there, Ashley Edward Miller is the writer of such films as Thor and X-Men First Class. He was the showrunner on Dota Dragon's Blood. And then there's our good friend Darren Docterman, who is the associate producer on Star Trek The Motion Picture, the director's edition, as well as being a concept artist for any number of Hollywood productions that you've seen and enjoyed and loved and appreciated. And of course, Mark A. Altman here has been a uh, industry professional for many years. He was the showrunner on CW's Pandora, and he was the producer of the very uh, popular uh, The Best Geek Year Ever, 1982. And that was our last Kickstarter, and that premiered on television this July. And we're not going alone. You won't have to take this trip just with the three of us. We'll be taking the trip along with a galaxy full of Star Trek stars, writers, directors, people who know stuff, people who have been there, people who did that. Among them, burlesque superstar Hazel Honeysuckle, uh, Deep Space Nine star Terry Farrell, and so many more to be announced in the coming days and weeks. You won't believe it, God knows we can't. And lots more people more good looking than us. So many more. Low bar. And how can you support this incredible documentary in time for the 60th anniversary? Well, there's some amazing backer awards on Kickstarter that are available to you right now. Not only are there challenge coins, hats, crew hats, there's a chance to join us on set or even be at the premiere. You forgot the pet rock. And who can forget Ernie, the Vasquez Pet Rock, which is a fantastic way that you can get a piece of the rock and share the adventure by having Ernie at home with you. So come with us now and make the trek at makethetrek.com and join our adventure because the human adventure may just be beginning, but the only way this documentary can start is with your help. So join us at Kickstarter and make the ultimate trek possible today.